0: If you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 8, for the next few moments we're going to continue our look in this amazing passage of uh, God's faithfulness in our sanctification as He is making us more like Jesus. If you were around 30 years ago, you might remember this. Um, it was a, a bumper sticker that was popular for a period of time and then maybe it, it kind of fell out of favor in popular culture and then in the 90s it crept up again and I I remember seeing it in um, November um, I, I was out on the road and I know I took notice of it And I was like well that's a strange thing and so I, I was doing some research and light bulbs kicked on and it was time to prepare this week And I was like well I, I got to talk about that um this bumper sticker. Any of you remember seeing those? Like I was doing research and like for a while they were like super popular in culture. And, and you know, the point is, right, um, kill your TV before it kills you. You know, like this idea that 30, 35 years ago there was a conservative movement of saying, hey, you know, it's, what happens on the T V can be all sorts of crazy and so be careful and you know, instead of just sitting in front of your T V for hours and hours on end, get out there and look at the sun and enjoy the snow. I know Brian doesn't want to enjoy the snow, but enjoy the snow and all those kinds of things. Uh that's still true today, right? And I, I don't think it was accidental that I saw it around November. We all know what was going on around November and um, you know, so Um, I I think we can add to this list. Kill your internet. Kill your smartphone. Kill your social media. You get the point? The thought is that if you don't disconnect, then any of those things can have the ability to fill your mind and heart with things that will ultimately drag you down. I mean, it's not by accident that as a society we're dealing with the issues that we are. I mean there is a drumbeat banging that is pulling us away from God's truth. And it's all around us, and it's nonstop, and it's to the point now that it's so acceptable that any different position or standing comes under attack. And it's like, well, how did we go from here to here? What And, and it just seems like even in my generation, and I'm not that old, And for you that are older, you're probably thinking, I don't know how we got from here to here, and it's so different. I mean, I posted this week on my Facebook page the the craziness of, they're, they're taking the Mr. and Mrs. out of Potato Head. Like, how did we get here? But it's the drumbeat of everything that is around us. And, you know, before we start pointing fingers at anything very specifically, we need to understand that the war that we are fighting is a spiritual war and the adversary is the evil one who is working in the principalities in the invisible places and and, and again you know we're called to what Paul says in Ephesians 6 to put our armor on to protect ourselves but the thing is as we've been looking in Romans, especially in chapter 8, what we're going to discuss. If we don't put sin to death, it'll put us to death. So if you have your Bibles, let's read these verses in Romans 8. I'm going to begin in verse 9 and read through verse 13. However, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness, but if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life, or give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death The deeds of the body, you will live. Paul emphatically says in these verses if we don't put sin to death, it'll kill us. Now, the challenge is how? I mean, what I mean by that is if we're saved by grace through faith, and that it is God that eternally secures us, holds us, completes our salvation from start to finish. Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. If, this, if salvation is God's master plan for the ages, and as we will see later in Romans 8, it is God who is the one that is predetermined Working his plan out and calling people and regenerating people and saving people and sanctifying people and ultimately in glorifying people. When it comes to this thought or this idea about putting sin to death, I mean, if we could do it, why would we need him, right? Right? Like here's the question, if killing sin prevents us from dying, and it seems that Paul calls us to kill sin in this passage, right? Verse 13, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die, but if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If we could do it on our own, would we need a Savior? No, you wouldn't need a Savior. Listen, killing sin in your life, and you know what I'm talking about because I'm sure many of you have tried it at different points, right? Those persistent sins that are there and reminding you of your flesh and your fallen nature. You're like, man, I I just need victory over this. And you've read the books and you've listened to the sermons and you've tried the steps. You've done all the work and you've tried really hard and it doesn't seem like there's complete victory. I mean, if you could do it on your own, you wouldn't need what God provides. And yet, Paul calls us to kill sin. But killing sin is not tied into our effectiveness. Our ability to be victorious is that we trust in what God provides. And you look at Romans 8, what does he say? Trust the gift of the Holy Spirit. We have to trust in the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit. And as we discussed a few weeks ago, we looked at Romans 8. The Holy Spirit takes the place of prime position. He is the priority, as Paul is teaching us, on God's sanctifying work. The Holy Spirit is active in the believer's life when it comes to spiritual growth. And I think sometimes we need to be honest with ourselves. We hear that. We hear that God's Spirit is active in our sanctification, that God's Spirit is working through the believer's life, that God's Spirit is indwelling the believer's life. And and if we're honest with ourselves, aren't we sometimes afraid of the Holy Spirit? I know at times I, I can be. I think of the Holy Spirit, and I think, oh my word, like Acts chapter 2, it, the Holy Spirit came down in tongues of fire, and, and people spoke in languages, and Peter spoke in a language that he didn't understand, and people heard it, and they were able to translate it. I hear people in the book of Acts that are moved by the Holy Spirit to do crazy things that they never could do before. Even in our present culture of contemporary Christianity, we, I, I see the... the the power of the Spirit in different ways, and as churches try to f- harness that power and figure out that power, and, and they're experiencing the Spirit in different ways whether they're singing in, in, in louder voices that I can sing in, whether they're speaking in tongues that I don't understand, whether they're saying that they can do things that I don't think I've ever experienced. And we hear that the Holy Spirit is working and active in the believer's life. And I think it sometimes, as you know, the conservative Christians were like, whoa, I, I don't want to go too crazy with this Holy Ghost power. I mean, think about it this way if your life was led as much as God wants to lead it under the Holy Spirit's direction, your life would probably be very different. And I think that scares us. I think it challenges us. I think it shakes us and says, oh my, where would that lead me? And the Spirit of God in the believer's life can be that sobering reminder that God is not satisfied with where you are and where you came from. And He's giving you everything that you need to please Him and live for Him. If you've ever been kind of overwhelmed with that thought of the Holy Spirit, I pray that you're encouraged this morning to to take that step of faith, to consider that God may call you to some kind of crazy supernatural experience. And that's okay. Right? If there were no crazy supernatural experiences that people walked out on faith in, where would we be concerning the Scriptures? We'd just be stuck. Jesus would come and ascend back up to heaven and there'd be a bunch of afraid people in the upper room wondering what is next. And said in another way, right now, today, you us are a tangible expression of the Holy Spirit's power at work in the believer's life. This church wouldn't be here today. You wouldn't be here, not just in this building. You wouldn't be a child of God if it wasn't the Spirit's work in your heart and in the hearts of those that ministered to you and encouraged you, and witnessed to you, and shepherded you, and helped you to be where you are today. We forget that the Holy Spirit is not a force. You know, I, I, when I hear the word force, Levi, when I hear the word force, what, what comes to mind? The force. Star Wars is like, you know, it's like I can move things and all that kind of stuff. But that's what we think. We think that God's spirit is like this force that, you know, is just moving upon us and crashing upon us and, and pushing us in different directions. We forget that the Holy Spirit is a co-equal member of the Trinity, that the Holy Spirit is God himself. The Holy Spirit isn't this third-party kind of aberration. The Holy Spirit isn't just the Spirit of Jesus. You know, we sometimes go through, and this is actually a heresy. If you want to study church history, there was a heresy called modalism. That there were people that taught that there's God the Father, and when God the Father wanted to come to earth, he showed up as God the Son. And when God the Son left earth and went up to heaven, God stayed in God the Spirit. But they shifted. In different forms. That's a heresy. That that is a troubling truth. Because God didn't change. God is the same, and there is one God that is revealed in three persons, each unique, each with different. Um, uh, I, I hate to use the word jobs, but responsibilities. All in subordination to each other. One God, though, in essence, the same. And that, I know that's a hard concept for our minds to think about. But when it comes to the Holy Spirit, we need to remember that the Spirit is co equal with the Father and the Son. And if we were to be asked all sorts of questions of what we believe and why we believe it, and it comes to the Father, we'd be able to say, well, he's this, and he's that, and he's shown himself here. And then we think about the Son, and we think the same things. Yes, I know how he was born and what he did on earth and where he went when he died. And when it comes to the Spirit, we're like, "Ah, I know he does something, I know he's powerful, I know he gives something, but we have a harder time answering questions on the person of the Holy Spirit. but I'm going to say to you that it is only possible to be sanctified under the direction and power of the Holy Spirit. Like we can't grow in the grace of Jesus Christ. We can't become mature children. We can't become like our Savior unless we are yielding ourselves walking with the Holy Spirit. We we saw that in in verse 4 of chapter 8. The requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. Now the word walk according to the Spirit is assumed because it's a contrast with walking according to the flesh. That Paul is saying that if we want victory over the law, if we want victory in our sanctification, if we want to please God with how we are living, we must walk by the Spirit. If you're going to find victory over persistent sin in your life, then you are going to need to trust in God's provision of His Spirit that lives inside of you. The Holy Spirit enables you to live a life that is pleasing to God. So, let's walk through this passage together and see what Paul says. He says in verse 9, "...however..." That's an important word. It's a contrasting word. It indicates the contrast between life in the flesh, which leads to death, and life in the spirit. He says, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. However, you are not. You may want to underline that phrase, you are not. Why do, you, why do I think that's such an important phrase because it's a declarative statement God is saying to the believer you are not in the flesh God is saying to you that if you have trusted in his son if Jesus' death on the cross paid for your sins, and you've trusted in that finished work, God says about you that you are no longer a sinner. You are no longer in the flesh. Now, you may sin. You may fall short sometimes. That's the struggle of Romans 7. But you're not in the flesh. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. The flesh is no longer master over you because you've been bought with the precious price of the blood of Jesus. Love ran red at the cross. And His blood set you free so that you can be a slave of Him and no longer a slave of sin. What God is saying through the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 9 is that you have a new, a new identity. You have a new identity. Now, I, I think sometimes as people that love Jesus, we, you know, we listen to the chatter, we listen to the noise, we, you know, the whole kill your television bumper sticker kind of thing. Like We listen to all that. And um, You know, maybe some people have said unkind, harsh words to us that have stuck with us, and and they kind of chain us up and hold us back. And and we have a hard time living out of the shadow of of those crushing, deadly words. But I think for most of us, we have a hard enough time listening to our own voice and the own things that we say about ourselves. And I, I want you to hear this morning... That if God has declared that you are in the Spirit and no longer in the flesh, then we need to trust that what God says about us is true. and We need to stop listening to all the noise, all of the thoughts, all of the things in our lives that cloud our vision and, 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 and kind of crash in around us to pull us away from walking with Jesus. And we need to live affirmed and steadfast and encouraged in the truth of what God has said. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. All of this is true because of the promise of the Holy Spirit. Look at what Paul says. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells dwells in you. Now, this next phrase can be a bit confusing when you read it. It really can. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. The the trouble or the confusion exists because of the word if. It makes it seem like, maybe. Maybe it's possible. Maybe if I have this maybe 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 and we end up looking over our shoulder all the time saying i wonder if i have the spirit i wonder if i have the spirit i I don't know if i have the spirit it could be here maybe he isn't here i don't know but that's not what paul is saying he's not trying to confuse the church in rome at all this word if in the greek language it can also be translated since and that's the better translation We know that Paul is talking about the word since and not if, because it's a first class condition in the Greek language, which means that it represents something that is true. Like what he is saying is absolutely true. And so when you read Romans 8, 9, Paul says, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, since indeed the spirit of God dwells in you doesn't that really change how you read and understand that verse? It's not a question then. We're not left to wonder and doubt and look over our shoulder and think, I don't know. This is a certainty. Just like the declarative statement in verse 8, however, you're not in the flesh since the Spirit of God dwells in you. This is a huge truth. Every person who has ever trusted in Jesus Christ since the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2, has the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13, Paul says, "...in Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise." You're sealed. God says that your trust in Him is guaranteed and He will never leave you nor forsake you nor will He ever give up on you. He will complete that good work that began in you in the day of Christ Jesus. You are secure forever because the Holy Spirit is given to you and you are sealed in Him. You can't break that seal and you can't lose the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. Paul says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For by one Spirit we were baptized into one body. Every born-again person is a part of the body of Christ, and we have been baptized, we have identified, we are united by the Holy Spirit together. There's no classes in God's family You know, there aren't people that get the good seats up front and everyone's left to the back. And you're thinking, oh, the back's good because, you know, I can come in easier. No, the good seats are, no, anyways. So the, the point of what Paul's saying is we don't receive the Holy Spirit at a later time. It's not like we become a follower of Jesus and then we have to do something special to get the Holy Spirit. Now, there are churches that teach that. There are churches that teach that you have to be baptized in water to receive the Holy Spirit. There are, ter- there are churches that teach that you have to exhibit some kind of spiritual gift. And that is the sign that you finally receive the Holy Spirit. And that is not true at all. The clear testimony of Scripture is that when you believe in Jesus Christ, at the very instant that you trust in Jesus As the Son of God who has died on the cross for your sins, God's Spirit has taken up residence in you. And when we look at Romans 8 further on, we're going to see another kind of mysterious, crazy work of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is already working and activated in a person's life so that they can believe. The regeneration of the Holy Spirit. The preparation of the the sinner's heart to understand the gospel that 's all by the Holy Spirit, but very specifically, God takes up residence in you, I love the Word. That Paul says in verse 9, God, the, the Spirit of God dwells in you. He doesn't say He visits you or He comes upon you when your life is together or when you do all the right things or when you check all of the boxes. No, God's Spirit dwells in you. And the word dwell means home. It's residence. Now, this is something only God can do, right? Be everywhere all at once, omnipresent. Like, God's Spirit never runs out. There's never enough to give. Every believer is assured that they receive the full measure of God's Spirit. Nobody has more or less. Now, this is really important for you to understand. Because God is in you. God is in you. If the Holy Spirit is a co-equal member of the Trinity, and He is, and He has all the characteristics and attributes that God the Father and the Son have, and He does, then God it lives inside of you. Think about that. That's a wonderfully overwhelming thought. It's crazy. I mean, I I know in my own life I play these games and think, well, maybe God's eyes are closed right now. And I can do whatever I want whenever I want. It's not a big deal. No, God's Spirit is in me. God lives in me. He dwells in us. He takes up residence. There is no moment in your life that God is not with you. I pray you see the comfort in that. In the darkest valley, there is always light with you. God has made the ultimate investment in your life that he guarantees that you will make it home to be with him because he has given you his spirit. It also means that everything you need to live a life that pleases the Lord is already inside of you. There is no secondary kind of experience that you have to look for. It's not like you become a Christian and then you get really smart about it and then you figure it out. You have everything that you need to live the life that God wants you to live. To serve in the way that God wants you to serve. To go to the places that He wants you to go. You have it all. That's crazy to me. Now there are things that God does in bringing us in the local church to help us mature and grow as we walk by the Spirit. But you have everything you need You don't have to keep going to the store. Like, do you ever do a project around the house? Like, I'm guilty of this. I'm really not good at this. I I look at a project and I come up with my list and I go to the store and I figure it out. And then I get started. I'm like, oh my gosh, I need like 10 more things. And then I go to the store and I get those 10 more things and I come back and I'm still working on the project. And I'm thinking, I forgot that. I didn't even know I needed that. Some of you are thinking, I'm never asking you to help me. And that's great. (laughs) You know, I, I can play golf more. I'm perfectly fine with that. But what I'm saying is, you have it all. You have everything that God wants you to have so that you can live for Him. The contrasting thought is the word if. And this is a conditional word. The rest of verse 9, but if anybody does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. Do you see the interchange there? The Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, same Spirit. Paul understands the, the beauty of the Trinity as he's saying that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one. And he just flows right in from the Spirit of God to the Spirit of Christ. It's the Holy Spirit. If, and that's a big if, anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not God's. You don't belong to Him. And Paul says in verse 10, if Christ is in you, Now, I just said the Holy Spirit is in you. But now he says, if Christ is in you. Now, I I think it's wrong for us, and I, I don't just think, I know this. We know that when Jesus was on the earth, he died on the cross. Three days later, he rose again. And then 40 days after that, he ascended back up to heaven. And where does the book of Acts say that Jesus went when he died and went to heaven? At the right hand of the Father. In fact, we only know in one other place later on in the book of Acts when Stephen died that Jesus actually stood up. He's at the right hand of the Father. I think sometimes it's wrong for us to tell people that they need to invite Jesus into their heart. It's like we've got to let this little Jesus live inside of us. That's not what the, the teaching of Scripture is. The Son is with the Father. And as we invite the Son to be Lord and Savior of our lives, as we trust in Him, as we accept His sacrifice on the cross for our sins, we are united with God by faith as we are reconciled, as we are justified, as we are no longer enmity, or with enmity with Him. And God puts His Spirit in us And Paul says, if Christ is in you, and there's that free-flowing thought again of the, the beauty of the Trinity, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. A theologian named Douglas Moo said it a lot better than I could in his commentary on the book of Romans. He explains what this means is not that Christ and the Spirit are equated or interchangeable, but that Christ and the Spirit are so closely related in communicating to believers the benefits of salvation that Paul can move from one to the other almost unconsciously. Thomas Schreiner points out in his commentary on Romans, texts like these provide the raw materials from which the church later hammered out the doctrine of the Trinity. The Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, Christ in you, the Spirit in you. All of this has helped us to better understand who God is as Father, Son, and Son. In, spirit. in verse 10, Paul says the body is dead. Now, that doesn't mean that you're dead. It means the earth suit is decaying, and yet the spirit is alive. Now, what's interesting about verse 10 is this word spirit, right? Spirit in your Bibles in verse 10 is what? Capital S or small letter S? Yours has capital what translation is it? New King James. Good for that translation. Uh, a lot of the English translations translate spirit in verse 10, small letter S, because the translators are trying to figure out what is the object, what is the meaning of the word spirit. And, and for some reason, they have translated small letter S. My New American Standard has it the same way. But I don't believe that, that Paul's emphasis here in the spirit in verse 10 is uh, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness, is a re- reference to our Spirit. It's a reference to God's Spirit. Now, there's clues in the text. In Romans 8, the Holy Spirit takes the prime focus in this passage. And why up until this point, eight times when, when Paul refers to the Spirit, would refer to the Holy Spirit, and then here it all of a sudden change his, his mind on how it's used? I believe the context favors this interpretation. The Spirit is alive. Literally means life. The Spirit has life in the believer's life as they have received Christ's righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him, verse 11, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Now the subject again is God's Spirit. And the Spirit who gives you power, you need to see this, the Spirit that lives in you, that gives you power, is the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Same power. Now, if you've ever thought I don't know how I can do this. Do you, you ever doubt what what God is doing in your life? What He's calling you to do? What, he, what you know He wants you to do? And you think, I don't know if I could do it. If you have God's Spirit, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in you. You can do it. That's right. It's time for us to stop doubting. It's time for us to live in the power that God has given us. It's time for us to walk with the person of God who indwells us, the Holy Spirit, that is empowering it and calling and is effectively working out God's sanctification in our lives. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Now here again, we see a similarity between the Spirit and the Father. The Father raised the Son, Ephesians 1.20, which he brought about in Christ when he, the Father, raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The Father raised the Son. How did the Father raise the Son? Through the Spirit. The Father raised the Son through the Spirit. They're all active in the resurrection. But there's another truth for us to consider here. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Let me ask you a very simple question. This is like Christianity 101. Do you believe that Jesus is alive? Okay. Then God's going to give you life, He's not going to keep you dead. You're no longer dead. You are alive. And the certainty of your future resurrection is guaranteed because Jesus is alive. Now at this point, you may be wondering, that's great. Good stuff. Holy Spirit lives in me. Awesome. Power, ability, great. How do I know for sure I have the Spirit? You might be wrestling with some of those questions. And I I just want to give you a a couple quick things to think about. How do you know for sure you have the Spirit? Well, you know you have the Spirit if you've experienced new birth. You may not remember the exact time or place, but you know that the Spirit of God has changed your heart from being a God-hater to a lover of God. And He's changed you from trusting in your own good works Trusting in Christ alone. You know you have the Spirit if you've experienced new birth. You also know that you have the Spirit if you are drawn to Jesus and have a desire to know and honor Him. You know you have the Spirit if the very name of Jesus causes your heart to be overwhelmed by the grace of God. And you want to know Him and the power of His resurrection. More and more. You know you have the Spirit if you've been overwhelmed with God's love so that you have hope. You have hope. That's a spiritual work that only God's Spirit can give you. That His love floods your heart and you don't look at anything that could happen with doom and despair, but you see hope. Because God has rescued you. You also know that you have the Spirit if you regard the Scripture as God's Word and you're growing to understand it. That means personally in your own devotional life. And that also means corporately as the people of God gather Like when it comes to sermon time, opening the word time, you're not like, oh, here we go. That guy's going to speak forever. But you're like at the edge of your seat and it began Saturday night and it began Thursday morning. And you're like, God, show me your word. Because this is you speaking to us. This is you revealing yourself to us. And you're like the psalmist in Psalm 119, again and again, praying that God would open your heart to the truth of His Word. You know, you have the Spirit. If there's fruit growing in your life, the fruit of the Spirit, right? You know what those things are. Galatians 5 love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Did you, ever, did you ever catch up with someone much later in life? Like you knew them before you were a Christian, and then you, knew, you met them again after becoming a follower of Jesus. And after a short amount of time, they kind of look at you and say, man, you're really different. You're a different person. You have things in you that I never saw before. Well, that's the fruit of the Holy Spirit being cultivated in your life. You have God's Spirit. And this is an important one if you have a growing hatred of sin and a love of holiness. And we've been hammering sin and holiness, sin and righteousness, God's sanctification in our mortal flesh hard in Romans 6, 7, and now chapter 8. If you have a growing hatred of sin in your life and you have a strong love and desire to grow in God's holiness, and as Peter says in 1 Peter, be holy for I am holy, if that's your desire, you know you have the Spirit. You know you have the Spirit if you're growing in praise, joy, and thankfulness towards God. You know what I mean by that, right? Right? The world's crashing down, and yet you're able to be thankful. You're able to understand that God is faithful. You're able to praise Him in the midst of the storm. You have joy that is overflowing when every other circumstance says you shouldn't have joy. You should have a pity party. You know, you have the spirit if you're growing in these things. Two more. You know you have the Spirit if you're growing in your prayer life. You know you have God's Spirit in you, and we're going to read about this later. Sometimes the Spirit is going to pray for you in utterances too understandable for words. Like sometimes when you just don't know what to say, but you know I have to go to God, I have to talk to Him about it, I have to just rest in His presence. The Holy Spirit's praying through you. You know, you have the spirit when you're praying more and complaining less. Boy, isn't that an important truth. And finally, and not because it's least important, you know, you have the spirit when you tell others about Jesus. He's good news, right? Oh, man, he's good news. And when you are motivated and you're energized and you're like, I don't care what anyone says and I'm going to avoid all of the personal frustrations that may come up. And I, I'm, it, it's no big deal if they don't talk to me anymore. It's no big deal if they make fun of me. It's no big deal if I lose this or that. I know that the name of Jesus must be lifted high and the world needs to hear him. You know, you have the spirit. When you tell others about Jesus. Now, because the Spirit is that powerful and gracious on our behalf, our response should be highlighted in verses 12 and 13. And that's what we talked about in the beginning, right? So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We are under obligation, Paul says. The meaning of the word carries the idea of what a debtor owes. Think about that. Any of you deserve salvation? I know I don't. I'm not even going to answer for you. I'll answer for me. I don't deserve it. And yet, a precious price was paid for me. And I'm under obligation. I'm a debtor that can never repay the debt. The meaning of the word carries this idea of what a debtor owes. In these terms, each believer is indebted to the Lord for his rescuing grace. As a result of this amazing love, we should live not according to the flesh. And we talked about that last week. All those things that preoccupy our minds and hearts, the things that will fade, the wood, hay, and stubble, it'll all burn up. The things that last forever, the imperishable, that is where our focus needs to be. In verse 13, the result is if you let your mind dwell on the things of the flesh, you must die. But life is found when we set aside the passions of this world for the things that last forever. You have to put it to death. You've got to kill sin in your life. But you can't do it on your own. You have to rely on God's power. You have to be sensitive to His leading, listening to His teaching, relying on His power for the process. The only effective way that I've found to kill sin is is to kill it at its root. Like, seriously. Do you ever get lazy with your gardening and get out the weed eater and just whack off all the weeds and throw some mulch down and think, boy, that'll be great. How's that work? Maybe four or five days, you got weeds coming back through, right? You have to kill it at the root. The only way that we can kill sin in our lives is to trust God that He is going to kill it at the root and do what we can to get rid of it. Like, we don't even entertain it. We have to to prioritize the things that are important to the Lord and trust that He will bring honor to us as we live for Him. Now, I've had to say no, not at all, to things that my flesh is hungry for. I cannot even entertain it. I can't even let the thought creep in and think, well, maybe. Maybe it's no big deal. Maybe I can control it. Do you ever play that game with yourself? Maybe I can control it. I can manage it. We are not good managers with sin. That's not how it works. You let sin be active in your life, you won't be able to control it. It is a deadly force. And so what do you do? You rest in the provision of God's Spirit. One of the greatest gifts that God gives us is His Spirit. Do not be afraid where the Holy Spirit will lead you. As we see here, He only gives life and empowers us to please the Lord and give Him praise. What a gift that is, right? Now we have to have the faith to trust Him as we stop following the desires of the flesh. Let's pray.